Maybe you felt chills or goosebumps. Perhaps it's an overwhelmed feeling of something bigger than you or more complex. Whatever the feeling, God put the response in your soul as a reminder of His presence, power, and glory. It's called awe, and He wants to remind us of it every day in many ways. Join us as we discover how God has used His awe to inspire others to follow Him deeper in their lives. In Ephesians 1, Paul talks about our great gifts that were given from our Heavenly Father, like redemption and forgiveness, and it says that He's lavished those on us. Well, that's fitting as we just passed Father's Day to think about, but today on In Awe by Bruce, we're going to get an earthly view of this same lavishing by a father who lavished his gifts upon his children. And just like our Heavenly Father, it's not that they were material gifts. They're the gifts of wisdom and experience that get passed on. We have Nita Whitaker on the line, and that's what her father Green did. She is a former Miss Louisiana accomplished singer who sang the original demos for Whitney Houston standards, toured with Andrew Bocelli, performed with Michael Bolton, Lionel Richie. I was also going to say Michael Buble and ask you if he comes out of the refrigerator, but (laughs) (laughs) and and others, the list of her singing and acting feats. I mean, it goes on and on. You could read that uh, on the website as well as a charitable work that she does on literacy. But the focus for today is how her father lived a life during the Jim Crow era with so much segregation in the South. And as she says in her new book, with his hand in the mouth of the lion. And yet I noticed on one of the things it says he came out very human. He did not come out bitter. And he left you and lavished upon you all kinds of jewels of wisdom as well as modeling an amazing life. So Nita, welcome to In Awe by Bruce. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Bruce. I'm really thrilled to be with you. I just want to thank you. You know, as I was reading this, it's perfect timing, not only for Father's Day, but also Juneteenth that your book came out. Mm -hmm. And maybe a little bit into it, you can tie more how those fit together, how you see that fitting together in our world which needs a lot of direction and wisdom. But first, I want to talk about your father. Mm -hmm. How did his life gain the wisdom from having this hand in the mouth of lion? If you could unfold that for us and tell us how you came to that expression and what that means so we can understand where your book's going and how we can pick up further on what you want to talk about. Happy to do that. When Your Hand is in the Lion's Mouth, The Life and Wisdom of a Man Named Green is the book's title. When Your Hand is in the Lion's Mouth was something my dad said to me that stuck, but it's also a metaphor for things in our life that are bigger than we are, situations, circumstances, people, entities that feel like they are bigger than you are and they have the ability to make you small or crush you or just something that is overwhelming and we will have those in life and what my dad said in this in the story i think it's chapter 24 that i uh, talk about when i first heard that phrase i was in a situation where somebody had something i wanted and i just wanted to react and run away and my dad advised me that that wasn't the wisest thing sometimes you just have to sit still be quiet observe wait until the lion is calmer and you can tame it how you tame the lion now let's talk there's two ways to think of it of course metaphorically 
and figuratively, which is really what this is saying. But it is when, when your hand is in the lion's mouth is a metaphor for when life is, things in life come up in a bigger, how do you handle those situations? Uh What my dad says is you pat his head. So how do you pat the head of a Jim Crow era? How do you live in that life without being bitter and angry and combative? How do you deal with a situation where your food didn't come out right at the restaurant? And all kinds of situations that you will come into. What happens when your boss is putting something on you and it's not your responsibility? How do you handle those lions? Mm. And how you do that is that you stay calm, you get focused, you pat his head. That's how you tame it. You figure out a way to get what you need without trying to be so angry about it. Mm -hmm. Anger doesn't change anything. It just is anger and it is inside your body and creates disease. But how do you change that is that you pat the lion's head. You tame the lion with your willingness to see the situation differently, your willingness to be calm and get out of it. So that's the overall meaning of when your hand is in the lion's mouth, but it is attached to a specific story. But those words have fed me and been one of the things I listen to, one of the mantras I've listened to when I've been in a situation where I wanted to react or explode or blow up the house, (laughs) as they say. And I just, daddy said, pat his head, pat his head. Is there a particular story from your dad's life that stands out that you saw that happen that that really cemented things for you? Or was it a combination of a bunch of them building up? I think it was a bunch of them. I mean, certainly I saw a couple of things being raised in the South in that era. I remember being a little girl and our house was one house away from the corner of the main street that ran north and south in Shreveport. And there were two policemen beating a man. And I looked at my dad and my dad, I said, Daddy, we have to do something. And he said, Honey, we can't do anything. But what I can do is I can write a letter. What I can do is I can call a congressman. Their hands were tied. I was a very small girl. There was absolutely nothing. Wow. And so my dad says, you know, he when he was a young black boy, they had he said that we had no word. We had no word. And now at least you can state your opinion. So he feels like things have gotten better. But he took all of that. He could be angry, bitter about all of it. But because he had this nest of a great family, this nest of a great faith and a father and mother that modeled service and kindness for him, he poured that into his own life and poured it over all of his children. So that he didn't come out of that bitter, it made him better. Because what happened with that experiential thing is that he he learned a lot about human behavior. And mm-hmm. Daddy always said, I don't understand. I never understood this, why one group of people have to be against another. We all we all God's babies. We all God's children. Right. Just come, people are just people. We just come here in different skins. Right, right. And I thought, amen to that, Daddy. And that's the way he taught us. I've always looked at life like that. And I value every human because everybody is important to somebody. So I think we all need to kind of look at, at each other differently and not as foes. And if my opinion is different than yours or my political affiliation is different than yours, okay, that's fine. You're entitled to your opinion. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't have the right to harm me because I don't agree with what with how you think. 
just agree to disagree. So there's got to be more kindness. And I think that's something also that I saw, more kindness. And you have to be a stand-up person when you need to be a stand-up person, which I talk about that sometimes, too, where my dad stood up in situations where it wasn't common to stand up. But I have to say this, and I'm going to just do what's right, even though it's not popular. So there are times you're going to have to do that. But there's always a way to approach things with kindness and integrity. He would always say to us, everything in love and excellence, everything in love and excellence. There's so many little nuggets that I just carry with me and I just pull them out when I need them. And it's been a blessing to my life. So Nita, just curious as I'm listening to this, it it could be very easy, just like people look at what I refer to in the Bible in Ephesians 1, and they can look at these gifts that our Heavenly Father's lavished upon them, and they're Mm -hmm. unbelievable, you know, Mm -hmm. redemption, uh, life back with Him and having that kind of relationship and and Him putting His Spirit inside of us and all all the things that Paul lists off. Sometimes those can not be taken as deeply as really they they are. And and so my question for you is, was it that gave you ears to hear what your father is rather than you looking and going, Dad, that's great, you've made it this far, but but by golly, that's not the way it works in the world. I think what gave me the perspective to hear those stories the way that I did is I don't know, an innate spirituality is shared between me and my dad. Mm-hmm. Not him and he's not me, but certainly a lot of who he is is created a lot of who I am. So I watched his example. I watched how he carried himself in situations, you know, unknowingly that I was watching. You know, it's an unconscious watching that children do. What is the line from Stephen Sondheim? Be careful what you say. Children will listen. Be careful what you do. Children yeah. will see and learn. Children may not obey, but children will listen. And so mm-hmm. I was listening and learning from the way he was able to assimilate and still walk in the cloth of dignity and faith in his life. And I just always had that ear. I remember hearing stories and they would stick with me and I would hear phrases and they would stick with me. I don't know. It's just because it's musical or because it's, I just catch phrases all the time. This is I still do this in my life. I don't know. just gave me the insight. And I think it was a God thing that I was allowed to tap into these stories and pull out the universal meaning for all of us. Because my dad is a man of great faith. I've said that before, and I will say it again. His faith and his connection, his relationship, because that's what, to me, religion is more relationship. It is your personal connection with God. It is not the outward things. It's how you live. You can say and say, say, but you've got to walk the walk and talk the talk. It is the lived experience that I saw my dad walking as a man of great dignity and faith and, and demanding respect, not in a militant way, but in a way just in how he carried himself, the way he addressed you, the way he talked to you looking in your eyes, the way he extended his hand. We are the same. I'm going to shake your hand. I'm a man. You're a man. I saw all that. I don't know as a little girl why I internalized all of it, but I saw him doing doing this work of being a man, a stand-up man in the community, of being a man who was a man of faith uh, in the way that he lived and walked and talked to people. I caught some of it. I know it, it, it spilled over to, to all of us. All of my siblings are really beautiful people. Oh, and that's great. Uh, that great dad and, and mommy that we that we had and Ooh. still have, thank God for daddy. <laughs> yeah. He's 96. Did we say that? Yeah, 90s. No, we haven't said that, which is... Yeah. 
You know, I'm thinking 96, and I'm just thinking he literally is the closest bridge. I mean, there there's yeah. not that many people left back right. to an era where, okay, yeah, slaves had been free. They'd come from all kinds of slavery. Oppression. oppression. Yeah, oppression. Thank you. And systematic, let me add that to that, oppression and systematic subordination. Yeah. That's really what it was about. There has to, in, in order for something like that to work, even if you want to look at, I read this wonderful book, Cast by Isabella Wilkerson. Uh-huh. She talks about caste systems, which is kind of what we had in this country for a long time. Yeah. It was a dominant culture, a dominant class, and there has to be a subordinate class. And you have to keep those people in a subordinate place, much like India does with their caste system, much like the Nazis did with Germany, with, with the Jews. It is that we are higher and you are lower and we're going to crush you. That is what we had here in America. I mean, and people don't like to talk about it. I know and we don't have to go down that road because that's not what my book is about. But it is more about the life lessons my dad gained from coming through that time and how he was able to create a life and give us a home that was full of love and well-being in spite of all of that. He took all of that as a tool to learn from. Yeah, see, and that that to me is amazing because when somebody allows God to work their soul Mm -hmm. to that extent in the midst of that kind of trials and tribulations and things like that, that to me, it's, there's a, such a beauty in that. It really it, is. It's authentic, right? It's, and I think it's, I think it's powerful. I think it yeah. is what I get from my dad and from that generation that went through because his oldest living brother was with us until 2020 and he was 101 when he passed. Now Jeez. they yeah, they lived the longest. The rest of the siblings did, because like I said, he's buried now 19 siblings along with his mother and father and my mom, his wife. So he's he's had certainly a lot of uh, sadness and funerals to attend, but he always understood that, you know, our time here is finite, but he's been able to look at the world from 1926 until now. Yeah. And still see the good in people. And, you know, he he just says, I don't know why they treated us so bad. I don't know why they're so afraid of us. He would say things like that when he sees things on television because he watches the news every yeah. every night at 10 o'clock. He said, let's see what's happening in our world and in my city. He Every night he watched without fail. <laughs> and if he sees something that's discriminatory, he says, I just don't understand why people don't value each other. Oh, well, amen to that. Uh, yeah. What were the four foundations that he taught you guys? Well, there were um, several, but the ones that I read about in the book that we are not destined to become something just because of our circumstance. Mm. I'm trying to think of all of them now. I remember love will always win. Love will always win. And he was such an example of that. Wasn't one about not being defined by what happens to us? Oh, that's, yeah, that you are not defined by our circumstances or what happened to us. Because sometimes people get stuck on a page if it is what something that's happened in this may be profoundly hurtful. But I do think that we can also overcome those things. It is just a matter of perspective and reframing what we've gone through. The other ones were love will always win. We're not destined to become something because uh, our circumstances are the way we were raised. We're not defined by what happened to us. Mm -hmm. That's a huge one. And with grit and humor and faith, we can travel together through this thing called life. Those were the four foundations. These are things that he lived. Yeah. These are things that he, you know, he was had 
they were went from landowners to being sharecroppers because their land was kind of sold from under them. And there was nobody to talk to, nobody to fight for them. Yeah, jeez. And they also had a big oil well on their property, which was the largest in that area. They happened for a while, but they went across the street, these illicit drillers, and drilled horizontally until they tapped into the Whitaker well. There's oh. lots of injustices. This is very common because the black gold, as I say in the book, the black gold that black men couldn't, men couldn't keep was their land. Yeah, yeah. And so they ended up being sharecroppers. But in spite of all that, the courage it took to step out of that life of I'm not going to pick cotton anymore, he created a life. He and my mother started with, with $8 between them. Yeah. And they were able to get a home and to build a life. And my dad ended up being the top insurance salesman in the Northeast region for 25 years. He wow. ended up being the co-owner of a funeral home. This is, this is what work and tenacity will get you and a good name. And my father had a good name because everything that he did, he did it with great integrity. His father taught him that if you do something, you plow in a row, yeah. you proud that you plowed that row. And you yeah. make it the best. And so that was instilled in everything that he did. So we saw that. I mean, what a blessing. What a gift. Not, and I say this, not everybody has the gift of a great father. Yes. I had the blessing of that. And some people don't get that. And the thing I want to say, and, mm -hmm. and this book is not about, oh, look at my perfect father. He did all these great things. He was not. He's a human. He's a man. Right. But what I do say to people who didn't get a dad like my dad is I'm going to share some of the wisdom. And in doing so, I'm going to share my dad with you. And if you didn't get a good father, look at the men around you who are loving and nurturing to their families. And you latch on to that behavior so that when you get to co-create your family, you can pull some of those good things into the life that you want for yours. That's what I had to do. I did, yeah. did not have the good father. <laughs> right. And I know a lot of people that did not. I mean, I feel like I hit the jackpot. I yeah. really do. But I understand everybody doesn't get that. And I also, there's a chapter I talk about, you know, when I went to a new school and my parents, they didn't say, oh, this was desegregation and you have to go to a white school now. They didn't yeah. put it like that. They said, you're going to go to a school closer you're going to be in the in the room with other little children that have peach faces and you're going to make new friends and they made it really simple for me and i did miss my beautiful brown teachers and i missed seeing all the faces of my friends that i had been at school with for the first 4 years of my schooling but it wasn't a big shocker. So I walked in, there were still some brown faces in there and there were a bunch of little peach faces, but every person that integrated school did not have that experience. Some were being heckled and things hurled at them for just trying to go to school. Ugh. A school that the government said, you have to go to this school now. And some of that still makes me like, what? It is so inconceivable to me. I know. It'd be so cruel to a child. Mm. To yeah. a baby just trying to go to school and get some learning. Uh -huh. um, Ruby Bridges, God bless her, she did that. And that her experience is chronicled. But we are now in a place where we're not dealing with that. But there's other kinds of things that separate us right now in our world. Yeah. We need to come back to the center. And the center is always God. We are all God made. Every one of us. Not one of us is better or worse or less or more than the other. And that we can share this planet. We can share ideas. I heard somebody say the other day, I did not create this. You can't make a cake with just one recipe. It has to be many things in it. We yeah. need all those, all those ideas. They need to be a part of this cake, this beautiful experiment we call America. Mm -hmm. 
and and listen to all the voices and include all the voices. And I wanted to share these stories. We don't have enough stories about great fathers or great black fathers at all. Yeah. And I do think there is room. And then there's a lot of good fathers out there doing good work, parenting, picking those kids up, wiping those snotty noses, bandaging those skint knees, teaching in the little small ways by being available, being present, and being loving toward their children. There's a lot of great fathers. And I I sense that you are one of those great fathers. Oh, well, thanks. I hope so. You know, I really hope I've done a decent job with my my children (laughs) right sometimes we say it's just it's good you've done a good enough job good enough is okay (laughs) Okay. hopefully i've done a good enough job good enough (laughs) yeah yeah we there's something in our society where we want to be the perfect the best it's sometimes good enough is okay thank you for that you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) hey can you you tell me something i i picked up from this was that you know your father braided your hair yeah. And and there's a connection there between that and kind of gender scripted behavior. Yeah. Can you flesh that out a little bit? Sure. When my dad was a little boy in the night late nineteen twenties, early nineteen thirties, my grandmother had beautiful long hair that she usually kept under a bonnet. And she quilted a lot because that's what she would do to kind of, you know, help when the winter came. Everybody had quilts and she would make them for the family. And it was just a thing. It was just something that she did uh, year long. And she would make quilts and give them out and keep several for the family. And there were 15 of them at one point living in the house, if you can imagine. It was a four-bedroom house, sometimes except two or three to a bed. But they were happy. They were just a really very cohesive family. Yeah. But once in a while, my dad, six or seven years old, would say, Mama, can I braid your hair? Because he was a soft-hearted kid. And uh-huh. when the old boys were doing the killing of the hogs and the slaughter, he couldn't, he just couldn't do it. He just, he, his little heart wouldn't, he would just run inside. So he would sometimes sit, and grandmother would teach him, we called her Big Mama, how to quilt. <laughs> And then he would ask, can I, can I brush and braid your hair? And yeah, she'd take her hair down and he'd brush and he learned how to braid it. And one day someone passed by and said to my grandmother, you letting that boy braid your hair? And she said, ain't nothing but hair. Ain't nothing but hair. He's going to learn, he's going to learn something. If I learn something in the doing. So he learned to braid hair on his mother so that when he had three little girls who were trying to get out for school on, on those school mornings, he was braiding hair. He'd have one, mom would have the other, and he would brush and braid our hair. Oh. And he hadn't learned that when he was a little boy. You know, oh, that's not a thing for boys to do. Boys go out and do this, this. We have to take those labels away because that was a useful skill that he could use for his own children. Definitely. So when I had my girls and I have two beautiful daughters, I made sure that they had a toolbox and that they were mowing. I wanted them to know how to do everything because knowledge is power. Everything you know how to do for yourself, you don't have to call on somebody else to do. Right. So I wanted them to just have an experience of just trying out a little bit of everything. Well, Nita, I guess the question I wanted to end on is because you can hear it in everything you're talking about and what you're saying, but but maybe expand a little bit more on the importance of of getting these stories down and passing them on and making them family jewels, really. Right. I think that's really important. I've been thinking about this book for a while. And when I actually sat down, because I did some interviewing, but I live in California. My dad lives in Louisiana. 
And sometimes when we get together, we'd just be together. And I was like, oh, I meant to get that down. But I was storing up things in my memory. But when I started to officially write the book, I had done some interviewing with him. I had jotted down lots of ideas. I wanted to be sure and get these stories down because my dad is the last living of his family, of the Isaac Whitaker clan. Uh, and I knew, and, and God forbid, we hope it's no time soon, but when it is his time, those stories will go. Now, I probably had a hundred stories, but I had to just kind of whittle them down to the ones that, that kept coming up for me, the ones that he has repeated many times. And I thought they were defining stories of something that he learned, some experience or something that could hand on other people. I felt like these stories were great because I did want to preserve them for my children and their children and future generations. And also to share this great dad I got, you get to have a piece of my dad in this book. And I think it's important that people in their own families record because when the voice is no longer around, you want to hear that voice recorded, yes. videotape it because mm -hmm. You'll wish that you did. My great-grandmother lived to be 104. This is my maternal great-grandmother. Wow. Until she was 100, she could thread a needle. But I was too young to really have the presence of mind to sit and ask her questions and right. ask about her life. Her husband was a black overseer. I mean, come on. Wow. There's, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh my so, God. I mean, there's so much to unpack there, and oh. I didn't have the presence of mind to talk to her about that. I was just too young and living in, in school, and but I do have, on my mother's side, I have seven living aunts and uncles wow. that I can still ask questions. Yeah. And my oldest aunt is 93, I believe, and she and my mother were very close. Uh, so I still have their voices, and that's my next thing, just to kind of make sure I can chronicle that side of my family. But I do think, and you said it, Bruce, it's really important to get those stories down and preserve them and share them, because a lot of things are passed by oral, but you want to have some things written because the oral can kind of get lost in translation or the story isn't told right, but to write it down or to videotape them or audio tape them so that you have those stories of what our ancestors did for us to stand on their shoulders, for what they went through for us to have a wider door, what they endured so that we could stand in the places that we stand now. And it is such a place of gratitude when you understand, you have to understand history mm -hmm. because history, and you have to know the full history in order to appreciate where we are. Progress has been made and progress still needs to be made, but even in these divided times, they were living with a different kind of division there that was a lot more prominent. Yeah. We need to record those stories because it is how legacies are passed. So true. Man, thank you for sharing these bits of wisdom that you just did. Thank awesome. you for your book. We'll put that up on the website along with the interview here when we when we get it posted and, and let you know about that. But Oh, terrific. And it's also available by audiobook. I also want to tell the, the listeners yeah. it is available by audiobook on Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Uh, and my dad is a part of the book. And there's a bonus track of my dad singing. So you don't want to miss what? that. It's really very special. Is that where you got your voice from? Absolutely. I'm a chip off the old block. Absolutely. Oh, so we're going to call you Chip Whitaker now. <laughs> I'll take that. Okay, Chip. <laughs> Super. Well, Nita, thank you so much. God bless you. And, uh, you. you know. God bless you, Bruce, and bless what you're doing here. And 
and I hope that uh, some of the words uh, of my father and the faith that he imbued and uh, continues to live and walk in can be of encouragement and uh, somehow maybe inspirational for people that get to mm. these stories. Boy, no kidding. This is a good way to spread it. You know, I, your book's going to be great. So congratulations and uh, you take care and we'll talk to you soon, I hope. Okie doke. That sounds great to me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.